Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another wonderful guest. He is a Loyola University New Orleans College of Law graduate and currently works as a law practice manager at law firm Autopilot, as well as being a consultant, author, speaker, and podcaster for his 8020 Principal podcast. He has held past positions as an adjunct professor of law at Loyola University New Orleans College of Law and as a business litigation attorney at his very own Spenson Law Firm. Extremely excited to have him on the podcast today, Mr. Ernie Svensson. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? I hope I said your last name right. Yeah, you did. You did. You you nailed it. Like it took me years to get it right. <laughs> it's very hard. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Nate. I'm happy to be here. I look Absolutely. forward to Absolutely. Ernie, I'm very happy you're here. Before we get started, Ernie, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, my upbringing was kind of unusual. My mother was from Panama. I spoke Spanish before I spoke English. Um, she moved from Panama to New Orleans with my dad. Uh, he was a doctor. He became a psychoanalyst. So I grew up in the world of psychology. They got divorced when I was young. Um, at, when I was 12, my mom moved back to Panama and took my brother and I with her. So I went to high school in Panama which is kind of unusual. But then I came back to New Orleans, which I have enjoyed living in since then. Um, I died in the world New Orleanian. I love New Orleans. I love the music. I love the food, the people. I love the uh, laissez-faire attitude. And uh, I went to law school because with a philosophy degree, you can't get too many jobs as a practicing philosopher. You can teach, but I didn't want to teach. At, I didn't want to teach philosophy. So I went to law school, um, surprised myself I did well, got a job with a federal judge for two years, which I really enjoyed a lot. I learned a lot about a lot of things that you can't learn in law school or really even in the practice. Um, seeing how the sausage is made, as they say, was very useful. But then I went to work at a big firm, um, did commercial litigation there for about 18 years. After that, I went out on my own because I wanted to use technology. Um, and the people in my firm, they were nice, but they weren't visionaries with technology. So I said, that's it. I'm leaving. I went out on my own. I did well. People started hiring me to consult and help them figure out how to use technology. And I realized there was a market there. And then I transitioned out of practicing law into consulting, which is what I do full time. I consult with lawyers. Well, first, I'd just like to say I had it written down that you went to high school in Panama. I find that fascinating. How yeah. how was that? Can you? Oh, yeah. Was it was different? A, uh, was it different? How different yeah. is it from the sort of American school system? So, um, so the way that that went down, you know, as a kid, at that point in your life, it felt traumatic, you know, to be taken out of an American school system where I had a lot of friends, and and my mom kind of tricked us into going to Panama. She didn't tell us we were going to go live there. She told us we were going to go visit, and then we wound up living there. So I hated like the first six months and then I didn't like it for a little while after that. But what I hated the most, and I remember this vividly, was I went from, you know, permissive U.S. culture, nice school that I enjoyed, although I didn't apply myself. But I found myself in this all-boy Jesuit school, you know, run by Jesuits, serious thing. And then like every Monday 
they would trot us all out into the courtyard and we'd have to like sing the Panamanian national anthem, which I did not know, but was expected to attempt to sing nevertheless. And I was just like standing there in the middle of this every Monday. I was like, what is this? I was like, this is a bunch of propaganda. Look at these people. You know, they're just completely buying into this propaganda of you know, saluting this flag. You know, they're not like people in the U.S. that don't buy into this propaganda. And, and then, I, you know, over time, I was like, wait a minute. Maybe everybody buys propaganda. <laughs> and so it wound up being like one of the best experiences of my life because it just made me realize how much your worldview is shaped by the things you are surrounded by that you take for granted. And so nobody wants to have those things ripped away from them, but the effect of it upon my thinking was profound. Absolutely. I I, I have, I've never ventured outside the U S and in, in terms mm -hmm. of school or anything, but I, I mean, I, I could only imagine how like sort of the culture shock of it all mm -hmm. sort of like yeah. the, the, such the cultural difference but like you said there are those overlaps I remember right. standing up at like you know I think it, I think it was 9 50 every day you gotta mm -hmm. sing the pledge of allegiance you know that mm. I don't I don't even remember it actually yeah. I just, I just sang it. yeah but moving on from that you eventually ended up at Tulane University you were yep. a philosophy major just like myself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're proud philosophy majors here. Unfortunately, I won't be looking to be a philosopher like 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 you may have had your thoughts. But the that dream, is dismal. <laughs> the, the the dream died not yeah. too long ago. But uh, you also yeah. radio DJ. I thought I'd write. Yeah. I found that interesting. Uh, yeah. How was that? Was that sort of like your uh, your your the preconception of your podcast right now? Uh, you know, it's funny now that I, I mean I. I I guess I've thought about it from time to time that it was, uh, I was always interested in music. And so I just thought, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Sit there and play music for strangers, you know, like, and you get to talk a little bit. And so I went and I applied and they're like, yeah, you can't just walk in here and get on a show. Uh, you can do the grunt work, you know, and then I got to read the news from the, you know, rip it from the teletype machine and read it. And eventually I got a show and then the first show was like the classical music show at like six in the morning. So for somebody who avoided classes that were earlier than uh, nine o'clock, you know, cause I didn't want to wake up. I realized like I'd gotten myself into something simply cause I liked it. And I did like it. It was interesting. It was like one of the most um, interesting experiences I had. Um, my brother wound up uh, going to Tulane as well. And he stepped into it a little faster than me cause I kind of, introduced him to folks but yeah it was it was cool i mean you know you, you've got a you've got the power to speak to people <laughs> using a microphone now how many people are actually listening i don't know but, you know you you have to treat it like it's pretty serious and you know people would call in and re make requests so i know there were at least two or three listeners but it was fun yeah i i always look at the sort of are people listening kind of question i always think mm. of people in a room so if like mm. 10 people listen to it and i think of 10 people in my room right now i'd be like you know what mm. that's a lot of people we'd be crowded there wouldn't be a lot of right. space we'd be touching elbows sort of thing but you graduated from tulane then yeah. you ended up going to Loyola university new orleans college of law mm. now there was a two-year gap between when you graduated college to go into law school, right. but what were the sort of motivating factors, the sort of, you know, big decision-making factors that went into deciding I'm going to go to law school? Well, I kind of always had it in the back of my head that law would be a fun thing to do. I mean, I liked, 
Uh, I liked Perry Mason. I would watch Perry Mason. Yes, that was like, you know, the awakening of like, oh, that's kind of cool. He goes into court and he's got to think on his feet and he's got to figure out what's really going on. And my parents, when they got divorced, they began a long custody battle. And right after we moved to Panama, I had to come back and testify in courts. So I thought I was going to have to, I didn't wind up actually testifying because the judge just said, you know, come back in chambers and I want to talk to you which I don't remember that being covered in Perry Mason. Everything was always out in open court. Um, so I was just intrigued by the legal process. And then philosophy, what I liked about philosophy was that you got to debate big ideas. Uh, I didn't really care for the fact that these these debates seemed to kind of go in circles and became overly intellectualized. So law to me was like, you, you had to reach a decision. There's going to be a judge. He's going to bang the gavel. Somebody's going to win or lose. I liked that. And then also saw the movie Paper Chase. I think that's when it really clicked because the idea that you have to face up to somebody questioning you using the Socratic method. And, you know, of course, in that movie, Professor Kingsfield was notoriously mean, supposedly. But what he really was, was he was just trying to make you understand, you know, thinking well is hard, you know, and if you're just going to sit here, and you know, I'm not going to coddle you. And I liked that. I, that that was a siren song to me. And even though I hadn't been typically a good student, I wasn't put off by that. I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to go up against Professor Kingsfield because either you got it or you don't, you know? And I guess when it came to those things, I had confidence. I felt always, I was good at learning things by myself. So I, I thought law school would be cool. You, know, you go there, you, you figure out how to make arguments. It's about things that are societally important. But the two-year gap was because I didn't get into law school right away because I goofed around too much as an undergrad. Um, and I was advised, like, well, you know, if you take a few, uh, take a year and go to graduate school and get your grades up there and prove that you can compete at the graduate level, you know, they might let you in. And I was hoping to get into Tulane. I, I didn't get into Tulane. I got into Loyola. But at the same time that I was doing the grad school thing, I was working as a waiter at Commander's Palace. And that was really... Again, one of those improbably, you know, I would never have picked that and thought that would be a good training for being a lawyer, but it really is. It's good training for a lot of things, but thinking on your feet, reading people quickly, multitasking, not being, you know, put off by people criticizing you, yelling at you, having things go south, all that just like was massively good preparation for being a lawyer. I I love that because I myself, uh, I I feel that I had a great learning experience. I worked at ShopRite in the produce department, mm. and that was honestly made my social skills like unbelievable mm. because mm. you know you got to know where everything is. Mm. You got to you got to make sure everything is right when people have mm. questions. You got to have answers. Mm. So I I similar to the waiter job. I want I want to be a waiter actually because of mm. what you just said because mm. it helps you think on your feet. So mm -hmm. down the pipeline here, I'm getting a waiter job, but. Um, with that, I have to ask, yeah, so you get to law school the first year, everyone says you know it it could be traumatic or overwhelming, yeah, what was the first year experience for you? um, you know, I had we had well the I think the it kind of works the same way pretty much everywhere, but and when I went there, you didn't have any elective classes your first year, and you know the first semester you're taking contracts towards civil procedure, property law, legal research and writing, and criminal law. And 
I would say three of the five teachers that I had were like firecrackers. Um, not necessarily, one of them was a firecracker, like moved quickly, talked quickly, put you on the spot quickly, was looking to put people on the spot. He was, he was challenging and people were afraid of him. But then there was another guy who was thoughtful and he would just eviscerate you, you know, if he called on you and, you, and if he, he would call on one person per class and just torment them the entire class. Now he wasn't meaning to torment them. He was, again, it was just like, you need to be able to stand up to questioning and we're going to probe how you think things through. And so I was looking forward to getting, you know, grilled by him. I never did. Uh, but the other professor, he did grill me. And what was funny was he picked on me early in the early in the um, semester and he thought he was going to trip me up because he, he, you know, he had set up this thing you know, and he apparently got away with this every year, but he would, he would say, okay, let's talk about if you're at fault and that's negligence. Okay. You're at fault if you do something wrong, but then you get to this other concept called strict liability, where if you're doing something like demolition on a house or a building, and then that causes damage to the people next to you, you don't have to prove fault because it's just, that's such a dangerous activity that under the principles of strict liability, you hold a person liable. So he comes and he goes, all right, uh, Mr. Svensson, uh, how do you reconcile these two ideas? And I remember thinking, well, you can't because they're completely different. And everybody in the room was just, you know, like, oh my God, what's the answer to this question? And I said, and I just said, well, you can't. And he sat there and he paused for a while because like I had ruined, he was going to spend 20 minutes grilling me, you know, and, and then he said, okay. And then he tapped his chalk on the thing a couple of times and turned to somebody else. And then everybody in class was like, wow, man, you nailed that. And I was like, that was hard. <laughs> you know, like that, isn't that obvious? So then I kind of felt like this was going to be something I had um, that was suited for. And I wound up doing well. I liked it. Although I will say for everybody's benefit, who's listening, that what they teach you in law school, besides how to think, which they can't really teach you, they can just kind of help you develop it a little bit better. Um, it doesn't really apply much to the practice of law. Like waiting tables taught me way more that I used as a practical, you know, as a practical skill in practicing law than law school taught me. But you do have to learn to look things up and research and write and, you know, deal with those kind of questions. So I liked law school. It was fun, but um, it wasn't, you know, how you learn how to practice law. Yeah, actually, on a on a previous on a previous podcast episode, I had Patrick Eckler, and, and he went on like a a twenty minute sort of tangent about how he disliked the way law school goes and how mm. it's not very practical especially oh, agreed especially the third year he was very very outspoken about how not how there should only be two years it should only be a two-year mm -hmm. thing and that the third year is not useless but sort of very impractical uh, mm -hmm. so I, I always find it interesting to hear from other people that they agree with that and yeah. you know maybe maybe it will change one day it probably won't um, no. just, it's it's a, such a long-standing tradition, you know. It's been you know, probably two hundred years since since law schools have been around. Yeah, it's just it's. I think the thing, the reason why things don't change, and I hear a lot of lawyers, you know, who are more forward-thinking, will say, "Oh, you know, legal profession, lawyers are resistant to change," and I used to say that too. But then I've thought about it enough now that I I realize. It's not that lawyers are resistant to change. It's the human beings are resistant to change. 
lawyers tend to be maybe a little more resistant just because there's so much emphasis on precedent and tradition. And so, yeah, we use that as our rationalization for why we're not going to change. But really, most humans don't want to change, not anything fundamental. And institutionally, to change a whole institution, that's like the hardest thing in the world because you're going to have to get buy-in from all these people. And nobody wants, you know, individually, they don't want to change collectively. I mean, it's an anvil. Forget it. You're not moving that. I, I couldn't agree more with that one. I, I mean, it, it's it's definitely one of those things where you're literally going to have to pick up the whole thing and flip it mm -hmm. on, on its head. And that's just not practical. Right. Uh, so moving on, you graduate law school, you start at, so as a federal law clerk for the Honorable Adrian <laughs> G. Duplantier. Did I say that right? Duplanchet. He pronounced it Duplanchet. It's a French name. So he, uh, he. That that's that's what I thought. I I yeah. I don't yeah, know so. I don't know enough French to really give it that that English well, that you just gave it. Right. Well, Louisiana's you know we have a French culture, you know, French backgrounds. So there's a lot of French names. So yeah. So yeah, Judge Duplanche, he was he, there. He was a huge force. I, now that after being a waiter, in fact, more so than being a waiter, that's where I really learned a lot of practical things. I wasn't doing them yet, so you know the best way to learn things is by doing them. Uh, but I was observing a lot and I heard a lot of arguments by attorneys and I saw when they fell flat on their face with him or a jury, I got to see like, and then he would, he wouldn't, he wouldn't teach me. He didn't take a lot of time to explain things to me because he was just busy. He was, just a, he was a get her done guy, but you still learn, you learn like we'd say, no, I'm not going to do that. And you'd realize like, oh, okay, well, just because something makes sense in a law professor's mind doesn't mean it's going to make sense to a judge because judges don't think like law professors. They think like judges, which is, I got to make a decision here and I'll need to feel good about myself when I make this decision. And if I feel like I'm not right making the fair decision, even though it's quote unquote correct, you know, in a law book, you know, I'm not going to do that. And they, you know, they just do what they want to do. Yeah. I, I mean, it, he sounds, he sounds like my type of guy that the go getter that just get mm -hmm. it done. Uh, I think the distinction between law professors and judges are very important. And that's probably the reason why a lot of law school is impractical because mm -hmm. those people aren't exactly in the field and they're, you know, I get, I wouldn't want to say not getting their hands dirty. That seems a little disrespectful, but maybe I'll say that <laughs> they're, they're not out there going to, what do no, you, you can, you, you can say, I mean, look, I, I I watched, well, one of the law professors that I mentioned earlier, the guy who was quiet, but he would eviscerate his students, to, you know, my property professor. I watched him appear in court when I was clerking and I was like, wow, he's like completely ineffective because he thinks that he can do in a courtroom what he does in a classroom. And you can't. In a courtroom, you got to get to the point really quickly. They're not here to listen to people talk. They're here to make a decision. And if you don't give them the information they need, they're going to cut you off and say, look, I just need this. So I watched, you know, I saw really quickly that it's it's about figuring out, again, it's human nature thing. That's where like the waiting tables helped me more than anything else. Because you got to look at people and say, what? how do they see the world? I will say that living in Panama and seeing a different culture probably set me up for that too. Cause it's like, once you understand how I see the world, it's just one way. And if there's somebody else that I've got to convince or talk to or communicate with, and I don't understand how they see the world or I'm not listening to what they're saying, 
well enough so that I understand what they're, you know, indicating, uh, I'm really not talking to them. We're not communicating. I, I need to figure out where they're coming from. And you can't really convince people um, of things they don't want to believe, but you can shoot yourself in the foot and take somebody that you otherwise would have been able to convince and then create resistance or not remove resistance by how you act or what you say, right? So it's really more about that. And then of course, you know, you have to have justification. So if you don't piss them off and don't create resistance and you say, yeah, and then here's the case law to support this warm, fuzzy feeling you have inside that that's what you want to do anyway. You know, that's how you tie the ribbon uh, and, you know, make a bow, but it, it's, none of that's taught in law school. Like in law school, you're, you're deluded into believing that logic always wins because you, you're with these professors who love that idea, but like, they don't ever have to face the reality that that's, that's not true. And Aristotle, by the way, knew this a long time ago <laughs> when he wrote rhetoric, you know, logos, ethos, pathos. Okay. Go with the pathos first, and then you can figure out the logos part later, but ethos, and pathos are the two, you know, driving forces. Yeah, th this is actually fresh in the mind here for me, but that sort of draws me towards uh, uh, Thucydides. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I love the Peloponnesian War. It's one of my favorite books. I was actually watching a little video. Uh, Michael Sugru, I don't know. Do you know who that is? He's on YouTube. He's very... Yeah, it rings a bell. Yeah, very famous. He has like the old sort of grainy film professor videos that he yeah. used to give at uh, like UPenn and, and Princeton. Uh, oh, but yeah. he actually just passed away like three years ago. Like, you know, rest yeah. of the soul. It was very unfortunate. I was actually like very sad about that. Yeah. Um, but regardless, uh, I was watching one of his old live streams and he was talking about how Thucydides talks about sort of the, you know, the fight of Athens and the other smaller countries. And, you know, it's the ide idealism versus the realism of it. And, and you know, we, we all see that today, even even, as, you know, mm -hmm. you talk about the law professors, you know, being so logical, uh, you know, they don't account for the sort of uh, human sort of mm -hmm. aspect of the law, whereas, you know, people who are, you know, vetted. In, in the in the courtroom they definitely know the the sort of human aspect mm -hmm. that goes into any sort of courtroom I mean mm -hmm. at the end of the day you're, you're convincing a judge and they're a human being too they have feelings so you know if you treat them the right yeah. way, they could they could be fair and and I think it also goes goes even you know in, in a grander more picture of sort of the the selling aspect um you know you're you're a consultant yourself you you've had, uh, experience, you know, running your own law firm. So can you talk a little bit uh, or describe a little bit about selling yourself and, and mm -hmm. sort of how, how this all ties in with sales? Cause I feel like it yeah. does. Oh yeah, no, totally. And that was one of the things. So again, back to waiter job, you know, I worked in a fancy restaurant in New Orleans and coming up, you know, the, the people I worked with, cause I started as a back waiter carrying dishes and then I became a waiter and, and, you know, you're always working for somebody higher up, you know, th than you in the restaurant business, at least there. And the goal was very clear. We had one KPI, get the 20% tip, right? Like the higher the tips, the better everybody made out. But it wasn't even that, you know, that you necessarily cared about. Sometimes it might be, you know, if you had 20% or 15, it might be the difference of $7 or something, you know, so it wasn't necessarily that you, of course you want to make more money, but if you make that your goal, like I must get 20% from every table, then you, you're measuring yourself against something. What, how well did I perform, right? How well am I selling myself? And you're right. Selling yourself means 
you have to be likable. You have to be entertaining. You have to be patient. You have to be, but you also have to be moving the customer along, right? And you, and there's a weird thing where I, you know, I've heard that phrase, oh, give the customer what they want. Uh, not really. Sometimes, you know, you do generally try to give them what they want, but a lot of times what they want isn't available or it's unreasonable. You know, in the in the waiting in a business, you had to turn the table. And if you had a big round table, you only get one of those on your station every night. And so if the big round table is going to linger and, and take too long and you're not going to get the second round table that night, you're not going to make as much money. So you're like the first round table, you got to get them the hell out of there as quickly as possible. And if they ask for flaming desserts, which are going to take a long time to make, you have to talk them out of that. So you learn how to steer people towards things that are sometimes what you want and not what they want, but they don't notice. So it's almost like a magician misdirecting people's attention. And that was an eye opener. And then I'd see, I'd see attorneys doing that and I go, Oh, look, okay. See, right. You just, you have to get people to, and with your clients, you can't tell your client like, yeah, I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. No, they'll drive you nuts. So, so sales is definitely a big part of life, you know, negotiating things, winning people over, communicating well. I mean, it comes into play everywhere. But if you call it sales, a lot of people, and me included for a long time, we go, I don't want to talk about sales because you think of salespeople as cheesy. A lot of them are. But those are the ones that are bad at it, right? <laughs> like if if somebody's good at it, you don't notice. <laughs> You're like, yeah, oh, well, I bought something. Okay, how did that happen? Because they were good at it. It's like, how did the magician pick your pocket? Because you weren't looking at what he was actually doing, you know? Yeah, that that definitely draws me. I got, I got the book right here. I always keep it handy. But Dale Carnegie, mm. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, one, of, book. one of my favorite books ever. But, you know, he, he mm -hmm. talks, that that's probably my and I just, I only started reading it like two months ago. I just, I just mm -hmm. borrowed it from a friend. Um, oh, it's a great book. It, I recommend you, you'll read it again. It's, it's so chock full of practical, timeless wisdom. It's, it's one of the best, but on the top of on the topic of books, I, I somehow drifted into the topics of, of books. I always do. We're getting real philosophical today. You know, the philosophy major in us, it mm, yes. can't hold itself down. It just needs no. to. Needs to be released sometimes. Uh, what are some book recommendations that you have? Um, you know that you've listened or that you've read throughout your life. It mm. doesn't have to be about the law. Uh, you know, just mm. just your favorite books. Really, drop your record. Yeah. Um. Well, continuing maybe with the idea of influence and sales, a book that I think is it's been very influential for a lot of people, uh, including Charlie Munger, who passed away this past year, but. A book called Influence by Robert Cialdini, uh, which is spelled C-I-A-L-I-D-I-N-I. -I -I. He's a University of Arizona professor. He wrote that book in like the 70s, and it didn't really get a lot of acclaim or attention. And then people started to pick up on it because basically he identified six human characteristics that are deep-seated in the, you know, let's call it the brainstem of human beings that allows them to be more influential. And so it's like baked into the hardware. Like one of them is likability. If people, if you like someone, you're more likely to be persuaded by them, you know, which kind of makes sense. But what are the things that make somebody likable practically? And he goes through them. Like if if somebody's from the same town or same, they went to the same school, you know, there's little things that people go, oh, well, I'm going to like you because, you know, you're like that. The other one, 
another big one is authority. So if you are perceived to be the authority in a certain play, you know, certain realm, if you've written the book, if you're, you know, the expert, um, but it, it even goes beyond that. And there's a famous experiment by Stanley Milgram. I think it was done at Yale, the Milgram experiments, where they put people, um, they had fake doctors, fake researchers in white lab coats, and they'd bring, bring people in and say, okay, your job is to help us teach these people by giving them feedback. And if they give the wrong answer, you're going to give them a little shock and that's going to help them understand, you know, and get feedback faster. So we've proven this. So these people would not know what's going on. The experimenter would tell them to increase the voltage and these people would be screaming and harrowing pain, supposedly, but they were actors and faking it. And the person, you know, being told to do this would just do it because even though they were uncomfortable, because somebody in a white lab coat in a position of authority is telling them to do it. And this explains so much in life. So the book um, was so um, appreciated by Charlie Munger that he gave Cialdini a, a share of Berkshire Hathaway, which was valued at $100,000 just for ha already having written the book. And then he, and he stockpiled his book and he would give it to lots of people. And, I I think I had already read it when I heard Munger that that Munger did that. Munger's a very wise guy, or was a very wise man. And I said, okay, this is a book I need to read. And I, that's a book I go back, I read it, I think about it constantly, I recommend it constantly. I think everybody in law school, everybody in sales, and, and most people in sales, are actually introduced to it. But it, it's like persuasion one hundred and one. And yeah, it's a great book. So that's top of my list. Yeah, I've never heard of the the book before. Uh, so oh, you this, is, read it. this is a great day for me. I have another. Mm. I, I could put it put another feather in my cap there, mm. and and go out the, and get the book now. Uh, I love Charlie Munger as well. He's one of my mm -hmm. favorites. I'm always watching his interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, I I've ne I actually I've never run ran uh ran I've never read his almanac before. Mm. I hope to soon. I've heard it's incredible. Uh, so. You know, rest yeah, that's a good one to get. It's not, you know, it's not even a book that you necessarily have to read, like, which I like books like that, where it is really like an almanac and you just kind of flip it open, read some wisdom and go, okay, that's great. And then you come to another part and he may echo or straight up uh, repeat something he said somewhere else. But his basic philosophy was that, you know, one must develop a set of mental models about how the way, how the world actually works. And that these mental models interlace, and he called it a, a lattice work of mental models. And so, in, you know, ingraining those into your psyche is the goal. So, merely reading things and understanding the concept is not what you're shooting for. You should be shooting to internalize those things so that you can see how they interrelate and they just become second nature to how you look at the world. Because if you make better decisions, uh, you're going to have better outcomes and better decisions can be made with using principles, which actually I'll recommend another book. There's another really great book called uh, Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke. And Annie Duke is, you know, another, she was a world series of poker champion, but she had been studying psychology or behavioral psychology or and at uh, UPenn. And she went back and got a degree and she wrote a, this book, Thinking and Bets, and the, the the short premise of the book is that the wrong way to decide whether a good decision has been made, if you want to get better at it, is to, is to only look at the outcome. 
So she begins that book with an analysis of the famous interception by um, by the Patriots when they played the Seahawks. And everybody goes, oh, it was a stupid play. They should have run Marshawn Lynch one more time, right? And she goes, no, like you're looking at it in, in a afterwards. You have to look at it beforehand. And this is the problem is that that way of deciding whether a decision was good or not is rampant. Like you hear it everywhere because it's so easy to armchair quarterback <laughs> um, anything by looking at it afterwards. But what you need to say is, what were the probabilities at the time the decision was made? And it's just, that's how you play poker. You don't look at it afterwards and go, oh, that was a bad hand. Well, that was a bad move. No, what were the problem? Did you play the probabilities, right? And it's, that's it. Like, so she said, if you can rewire your brain to not say it's good or bad or yes or no, but rather, uh, I think there's a 65% chance. You're always thinking of probabilities. You're setting yourself up for a greater level of success. And she, what she says and what Munger says about decision-making to me, overlaps 100%. You know, Munger doesn't cite as much of the science and he didn't get a PhD like she did and he didn't play poker. He's a finance guy or was a finance guy, but it's the same game. It's like decision-making and being brutally honest in, in your assessment of your own decision. Yeah, your own decision-making. It's it's sort of hedging your bets against, you know, the best the best probable outcome. Uh, yeah. you, you know, we can't, we can't tell the future, but, you know, we can be close to it. And, you know, and sort of having those mental models, mm -hmm. uh, being able to sort of inter, in, put it in your head, keep it in your head, be able to look mm -hmm. at the world in, in that sort of way is really important. Uh, I will be getting both of those books now. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, and actually, I, I just over the break, me and my friends, we started playing poker. Uh, mm. so it, it will help me definitely because I'm really not good at poker. I Oh. I I started. I'm learning it a little bit. I think I'm getting a little better over time. But you well, know. I'll give you another recommendation, which isn't so much a book because you know, he hasn't written a book. But there's a guy named Brian Koppelman who uh, he's the creator behind Billions, mm -hmm. and he also wrote uh, and and developed a movie called Rounders with Matt Damon and Edward Norton and John Turturro. I believe was in it. Anyway, the, that movie, Rounders, was like his breakout movie, but he, Koppelman went to law school, and then he decided he didn't want to be a lawyer. So he became a screenwriter. That was a whole journey. But he has interviewed Annie Duke, and Koppelman, the the, the uh, movie, Rounders, is about poker playing in the back alleys of, of New York or you know in, in, the, in those salons. And so Koppelman's a huge poker player, and when he, when he had Annie, Koppelman, um, Annie uh, Duke on, he would talk to her about poker stuff, right? So they their level of discussion is goes deep into poker too, but it's understandable to even people who don't play poker, which I don't. But if you're interested in learning, you probably would pick up a lot just from their discussion. So I would go find that podcast episode and listen to that. Yeah, I I, I need to get better, and I want to get better though because I really you know. Mm -hmm. You know, gamble is that great, but I enjoy the game. I think mm -hmm. it's very like intellectually stimulating, mm -hmm. even like because I'm sort mm -hmm. of I'm getting used to all the hands and and you know mm -hmm. at what tier each hand is. So I kind of look. I'm like, all right, there's a potential flush here. You know, someone's got a two pair out there. You can tell. So I'm getting mm -hmm. better as the days go by, but there's still so much room for improvement. Mm -hmm. So. Going from where we left off, you were a federal law clerk, but then, uh, you know, you didn't want to teach philosophy, but you did want to teach law. You were an mm. adjunct professor at Loyola. 
Can you yeah. just talk about that experience? How was that? Uh, enjoying? yeah. So I, I think, I, well, the way it unfolded was I had been practicing for, I think like three years, maybe four years. And I was kind of getting disillusioned. I mean, I felt like I had learned a lot and I was like, I didn't like having to build, you know, for my hours and I felt pressure to not be as efficient. And, you know, there's just a, it's a low level hum of inefficiency when your incentive is to bill by the hour, right? Like you're, you have kind of a conflict with your client. So I didn't feel great about practicing law. And a friend of mine who's a professor at Loyola said, Hey, listen, you could come teach here. We've got an opening for a visiting professorship for a year. You would be teaching research and writing, which is kind of grunt work. You know, it's not exciting, but that's how you get in the door. And so I said, fine, I'll go. And I, I took it, I went there and I really did enjoy it. But then, you know, we had three kids and I needed to make money. So I had to go back to practicing law, but I just kept at it and did the adjunct thing. And I kept teaching moot court, um, teaching the moot court class. And I liked it. I liked, I liked seeing the students who were really interested in, in learning. And sadly, I would say that, I don't know, I'll throw out a number. I think like, I think 20% of students are at least at Loyola are actually interested in learning. <laughs> and now maybe that's, you know, because I like learning, I love learning. And so when I see people who aren't enthusiastic about the idea of learning something, I'm like, well, then just don't come here. Like, why would you waste your time doing something you don't want when you're paying for it? Um, and law school was, is fascinating to me. Like, you know, I did undergrad, I had trouble, but anyway, uh, law school was interesting because I got to see a lot of students. Um, and I, over the years, I saw many and I got, became friends with many of them. And I realized I really liked teaching. I guess that was the big thing. I like teaching people, but I also would say again, when you're teaching, you're not really teaching because you can't teach people if they don't want to learn, but if they do want to learn, you can give them guidance. You know, you can, you know, keep their enthusiasm up. You can, redirect them or point them in a direction of something that might be of interest to them. And I like that. And that's what I do full time now with lawyers, because I knew that that was another one where I said, even if I could teach full time, uh, the bureaucracy, no, not for me. <laughs> I sat in on discussions and I, th I thought that discussions in law, law firms were bad, you know, at least they're trying to make money and they all knew what the money-making thing was. These philosophical sanctimonious debates by professors about ridiculous things. You know, there's a famous quote, I think it was Henry Kissinger said, uh, somebody said, well, you know, academia is a lot of backbiting and petty politics. He says, you know why the the, the politics in academia is so petty? Because the stakes that they're arguing about are so low. <laughs> they're, they're not arguing about monumental things like you would think they are. Well, I, I won't, I won't, since I'm still an undergraduate, I won't yeah, agree with careful. that. Uh, I won't agree with that in the, <laughs> yeah, I don't agree. Once I graduate, you know, I might have some things to say, but I'll keep it to myself for now. Um, yeah. I think it's amazing that you love to teach as well. I always, in the back of my head, I always think I might want to teach one day because mm. I watch my professors do it. And I'm like, I feel like I could do a better job. I don't know. Um, mm. 
I feel like the, uh, you know, I, I like the engage, the engagement with with people. Uh, you know, I start I started a podcast. I like talking to people clearly, uh, but like you said though, you know, people have many interests, and and when you can guide people towards certain subjects or certain certain fields of interest, you know, it's it's fulfilling to yourself as well. Uh, you know, yeah. Dale Carnegie talks about that all the time. Uh, you yeah. know, as much as you know, we don't want to call it selfish, but it does make us feel good when we help someone. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know it's innate in us but mm -hmm. so you know you, you, well you we, you didn't stop teaching you kept teaching when you worked as a business mm -hmm. litigation attorney at gordon arada montgomery and barnett you mm -hmm. were there for a very long time can you describe your experience there what did you love yeah. what did you hate what were some favorite experiences um well i loved that firm I, and when i got out of my clerkship because i had done well in law school and if you get a federal clerkship, you know, that's an entree, or at least it was back in, in the day. And people, you know, law firms were growing. It was like, it was the gold rush time. It was boom time, you know, for getting a job in a law firm. So I was sought after by a bunch of different firms. So I, I really had my pick of firms where I wanted to go. And there was nothing that that was, that was excluded. So I looked at all the top firms and they were all great and they all made a great case. But the firm that I chose, I had clerked there in the summer. And I just like, they did, they operated in a different way. Like they, they did serious work. They were all, you know, high achievers, had great backgrounds, but they didn't as a general rule, take themselves too seriously. And, and other firms were filled with lawyers who were kind of pompous or arrogant or a little, just a little too full of themselves. And I was like, I can't do that. I, I need to be around people that are, you know, that can laugh and, and enjoy themselves. And so that's why I went to work there. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I was given responsibility way faster than I wanted and than I expected. And it was thrown into the deep end of the pool. But I I learned and um yeah, I don't know. I just I learned so much there. It was it was amazing. Do you have any what what's your favorite experience from your time there? Stands I, have so, I have so many stories. Um, I mean, I've t I told the story the other day when I went to give this talk because it was about chat GPT and AI and my, um, you know, my, some thoughts about that, but, you know, I was telling them about how, even though I had clerked for this judge for two years and I knew a lot about how litigation worked because I was behind the scenes I had never taken a deposition because, you know, you don't get to take a deposition where you're clerking, but I had read depositions. I'd seen them, you know, I just, I, I had a sense of what was a good line of questioning and I felt like I could probably do a good job in a deposition, you know, but I'd, I'd never taken one. So the lawyer I was working for, um, I was going to take a dep. He told me, he says, you're going to take this deposition. And he didn't say it was inconsequential, but you know, it was probably. And, but to me, it was a big deal. So I wanted to make sure thinking like, well, I've never worked with this attorney before enough to kind of gauge what he might want out of this case. He, you know, we hadn't talked about the case. It's a complete blank slate. So I'll just give him a chance, you know, to give me some direction. And I stopped by his office and he was busy and he had this huge office, you know, standing like 50 feet away from him when I'm at the entrance. And he looked up from his pile of papers and said, yeah, what do you want? I said, yeah, I'm going to go take that deposition. Um, and he goes, yeah, what do you, you know, what do you need? And I said, well, you know, I just wanted to know if there's anything you thought I should know um, before I go take the deposition. He goes, yeah. He goes, ask lots of questions. 
<laughs> and then he went back to doing what he was doing. I was like, oh yeah, I kind of knew that. I mean, it was a brush off, but it was also kind of like, look, kid, you know, just you, you, you go figure it out. And I use that as an example in this talk because I said, you know, today if I were to go to ChatGPT and say, you know, what is a good deposition, it would spit out an answer. And even though that answer that I looked at when I showed to lawyers has some things I wouldn't say, and probably some of them wouldn't say, it's a little different. It basically contains 80% of what you need to know, right? So even if you already know those things, having them as a reminder, that's kind of what I was looking for in addition to maybe like, well, you know, you got to watch out for this issue, make sure you ask this question. He didn't give me any of that. So like, I just had to learn again by doing it making mistakes and then looking back at the deposition afterwards and go, ah, oh, man, I should ask this question. So, you know, you learn by doing, that's true. Um, and it was, you know, it was that kind of firm where they were just like, yeah, just go figure it out. But they didn't, they didn't criticize you. They were just like, that's what you got to do. You got to make a mistake. And, and I'll say one of the things that he did, the same lawyer who I learned a lot from was I made a mistake one time on a case that only he and I were working on. And it was a client that we'd done a lot of work for, and it was a very good client for him. And I knew he trusted me a lot to be, you know, his right hand person working on it. And I made this mistake and it was, you know, like kind of like I missed, I didn't do something within a deadline. It wasn't, it wasn't the case was going to go away, but our deadline for getting discovery or something. And um, I was like, Oh my God, you know, I, I, this deadline's over. And he goes, Oh, he goes, well, that, you know, that's not good. And uh, I said, yeah. And, I thought, well, we weren't really, we didn't say for sure we were going to do more discovery. So maybe we wouldn't have done any, but the deadline passed. We didn't even have a chance to think about it. So I thought we could probably just sweep this under the rug because the client doesn't know what we were going to do. This, these are thoughts in my head. But uh, he goes, listen, all right, um, just come with me. So we walk in his office. We walk down, you know, to get to his office and he picks up the phone, calls the client. And I'm sitting there and he just, he goes, yeah, listen, I just wanted to let you know, you know, about a mistake. Uh, he goes, totally my fault. I missed the, I missed it. You know, he he takes all the credit for the mistake as though he had done it. And the other guy who's listening to this doesn't know I'm sitting there. So he doesn't know that it's me that, you know, he just knows, okay, Tim made the mistake and uh, supposedly, and he goes, oh, you know, no problem. Thanks for letting me know. I appreciate it. And and then Tim just goes, okay. He goes, uh, you know, go get back to work. He didn't even say, you made a mistake. He said nothing. And it made me feel worse that he didn't, that he took the, the blame and it stuck with me. And I remember thinking a lot of things. One, that's what you're supposed to do is take responsibility, not shunt it off on your, your underlings. And just the way he did it was so classy. And he just never said more than he needed to say, I guess is the bookend, you know, he didn't tell me what how to take a deposition. He didn't tell me I did something wrong. He just never said anything that didn't need to be said. That's that's an amazing story. Uh, you know, it's 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 inspiring, but it's extremely insightful as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Learning things on your own, being able to make mistakes. I always I've made so many mistakes in my life, and I'm only 20 years old. Uh, yes. But it's always important that you learn from those mistakes as I have learned in my own experience, that that is usually the, the best thing that you can do. Uh, but speaking more on, because clearly the, the this person, Tim, had a very large mm -hmm. influence on your life. Mm -hmm. And you talk about, you know, your your sort of opinion on, on mentorship and, and on its importance on, on your life and potentially others. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think mentoring 
like teaching. It's a form of teaching. It's one of the greatest things you can do. And I've had so many people who in my life like made a huge difference. And the, the biggest person who made a difference in my life was when I was in Panama in my senior year of high school. And I was a horrible student in case I didn't mention that, but I was really bad after I got moved to Panama because I, even though I did speak Spanish before English, I really didn't speak it at a level you could just be in a school where it was, they were Spanish speaking and do well. So I had to like, you know, struggle with that. Uh, it was just a lot of, a lot of things I had to do. But in addition to that, I hated math. I put no effort into it. I didn't understand. I mean, I don't, I didn't do well with things. I didn't understand why I was going to use them. So geometry was useless to me. It's like, let me get this straight. I need to prove that the shortest distance between two points is a line. This has been proven. Like, why am I here? And so I didn't like it and I didn't, I resisted it. And the senior year I had physics and in physics, we were to draw on our experience in calculus and analytic geometry and regular ge and in uh, algebra. And I didn't know any of that stuff. And I had this professor who comes in and he's like, you know, I'm going to flunk seniors. You know, you're going to flunk if you don't do this well. And I was like, there's no way I can catch up. I'm probably going to flunk this class. And then he got sick and was replaced by his protege, who was a young, very charismatic Catholic guy who would come in and make us pray before exams. And um, the first exam that we had was involved the Pythagorean theorem, where you had to like calculate the distance, the, the um, speed of two boats from each other one going north at whatever miles per hour, one going the other direction west at you know, whatever miles per hour. It was just the Pythagorean theorem. That's it. But I didn't know this. I hadn't studied it. You know, simple A plus A, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Not in my head at all. I didn't know it. And we get this exam and it's all questions about that. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to answer any of these questions. And, and, it, and besides, in math, you never get credit for, for anything other than the exactly to the decimal point correct answer. So I'd been conditioned to know that. So I just, you know, waited till the first person turned in her exam, you know, the A student, and I slid mine in under hers and he was a new student. I figured he wouldn't know whether I was a good student or a bad student and he would just wouldn't look. But then he took it out looked at it and realized I hadn't answered any questions and called me over and said, listen, you know, you really, you know, you should answer these questions. I said, I, I don't know the answer. And so the bottom line is through his way of dealing with me, which was very mysterious, he made me feel like, there might be some trick here that I was supposed to figure out. And I liked figuring out things on my own. So I figured out, oh, I'll try, at least try to figure out what he's, his, what the trick is. And I'm sitting there like, I can't, and I came back and I said, you know, can I get the book? You know, can I look up the formula? No, you can't have the textbook. And then I went back and then at some point I realized, well, there's a ratio, you know, what if I could measure it with a ruler? I said, can I use a ruler? And he goes, yeah, sure. Go ahead and use a ruler. So I use a ruler and, at some point in there, I figured out like three, four, and five are like very exact. I said, oh, look at this. There's definitely something here. I bet you, I I knew with complete certitude that, I, that that was the ratio. I just knew I wasn't going to be able to get the exact number, but I figured at least I proved something to myself and maybe him. So anyway, Sam came back. I got a 90 something. I was like, how is this possible? And he said, well, you figured out a solution. This class is about figuring out solutions. And he goes, now I'm not going to give you credit anymore if you don't use the math. So you have to learn the math. And I did learn the math and he helped me. And he turned, he single-handedly turned my life around. 
I, I did well in math. I learned all this stuff. I got into Tulane, which I would not have gotten into Tulane. And he was just, but he was, he was a mentor. He cared about students. He wasn't just there to dole out information and, and assign grades. And a lot of professors, unfortunately, that's how they are. So. Yeah, I mean, listen, clearly from your story, mentorship is very important, everyone. Uh, I mean, really incredible. That's an incredible story. Uh, I was not a lover of math myself. Straight C's. Uh, mm. you know, I really, I did. It's similar to similar to the sort of boat that you were in. Uh, mm -hmm. I just, I didn't see the practicality in it. I always right. felt like, when the hell am I gonna ever gonna use this in my life? Mm -hmm. Like, you right. know, it's sitting in an intro to calculus. I'm like, I, I don't even know what's going on, first of all. Mm. But, you know, second of all, I don't really imagine myself because I, I always thought, you know, oh, I might I might go to law school one day. And it's like, I'm not going to be doing this. Um, yeah. but I think in in other in other classes, though, I, I did have teachers who who kind of, especially uh, when I took criminal justice, I felt mm -hmm. that sort of way. I had a very young teacher, too. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I was, I was, I was one of the people who always had their hood on with their headphones and <laughs> not really paying attention. Uh, and he sort of like drew me in and, you mm -hmm. know, every single day, you know, I, I'd be answering literally every question. I remember we listened mm -hmm. to uh, the serial podcast with, oh, yeah. uh, with Adnan Saeed. It was, it was the mm -hmm. first season and I was just enthralled by it. And I, and I, you know, I listened to every single one the whole way through mm -hmm. and I just loved it. And it really just, it really got me motivated to go to class and, and learn, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. It made me it made me mm -hmm. happy to learn something. So, you know, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with what you said there, how how important it is to to want to learn, uh, be excited mm -hmm. to learn new things, because it's it's been exciting so far in my life. Uh mm -hmm. and clearly in yours, it very much has been. So let's move on to well, you started your own law firm. I'd mm -hmm. like to ask about that. What went yeah. into that? And previously, I, I oh, forgot. I forgot to do this. But shout out Elizabeth Larrick. She's a oh, free. Yeah, she's the one yeah. who introduced me to Ernie. And I forgot to say that at the, at the beginning of the episode. But shout out to her. But she spoke about starting her her own law firm and how difficult mm -hmm. that was. And also previously, Brad Narstad was on the podcast and he spoke about how difficult it was starting his own firm. He said he went mm -hmm. through him, him and three other of the people he was building it with. They went through five hundred thousand dollars in three months alone. So, Ew. can you sort of talk about your experience starting your own law firm? Yeah. So I well, I, I started messing around with computers when I was in uh, undergrad. I like computers, um, but not so much because I was a techie. But I I just thought that societally they were going to be important, you know. And I'm always when things are changing, I guess I pay more attention and that's probably as a result of my upbringing. Uh, you know, I was, I had the rug pulled out for me when my parents got divorced, when we moved to Panama. And so I just became like hypersensitive to things that could change quickly, but instead of like resisting them, it was more like, well, you know, if the riptide comes, you know, just swim across, you know, until you can get back to the shore. That's my approach. And so looking at technology, I was like, this is going to be disruptive. And there was books about it, Future Shock. And um, and we, I studied it in my philosophy uh, classes because I had a professor who was interested in it. I was like, okay, well, if it's going to change society, 
then I'd rather pay close attention to it. And plus, I think it's kind of cool that machines can do things and take away the drudgery that we, you know, we don't have to do it. So I had been playing with computers and then um, in law school, the Mac came out and I got a Mac. And when I was working for the judge, you know, we were expected to type our own stuff. I couldn't use the Mac to output things there, but I, you know, I learned to type, I learned to use keyboards. I learned to understand computers. Lexus had come out. I did legal research with computers. So I was like embracing computers. And along the way, I had a friend who had a, had a, a copy shop and he did work for the firm, you know, we'd send off stuff to get copied and he'd bring it back. And then one day he said, look, you know, there's a new thing, it's called scanning and you scan it to a computer and the paper goes away and it's just digital files and it's great. And I was like, well, that sounds great. But he goes, well, why don't we do that? And I'm like, well, none of my clients are going to pay the, that ex that extra cost. And which, which was stupid because I I didn't understand that you only scan, you scan it once <laughs> and then you're not paying for any extra copies from that point forward because you're just printing. Um, that's how like clueless I was, but, um, I learned like you scan it, you can then search it. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. This means instead of all these boxes taking, cluttering the hallways and carrying around, you know, dollies and, and, and carrying thousands of pounds of paper into a courtroom, uh, I can just walk in with a small laptop and find things in an instant by searching. I'm on, I'm into this. And no one in my firm really got it. And I was like, okay, I, I think I need to go out on my own. And Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. The city was shut down. Everybody was, you know, uh, just, you know, there was a diaspora. People were everywhere. And meanwhile, I had my little laptop and I had all my cases. And, you know, I realized I had slowly become like a solo lawyer inside of a big firm. And you join a big firm because they have these vast resources that you want to piggyback off of that theoretically you could never afford. And in the beginning, when I started practicing law, yeah, you know, you couldn't, lawyers couldn't afford computerized research or, or small lawyers, you know, small firms couldn't. And slowly everything got democratized as the costs went down. So I was like, well, this is the moment. Like I could leave here with my laptop, walk out of the office with all the files I need and start my own practice. And I don't even need an office. I could practice out of my house. And I wasn't sure that was true, but I was so disillusioned with the way I was practicing. I figured if this doesn't work, then I'm, I don't know what, I'll go back to waiting tables. So <laughs> I did it. It worked. And then lawyers started asking me if I could show them how to do it. And that's how I got into the teaching gig that I'm doing now. And I was like, that was the best because the only people who hired me were students who wanted to learn. Right. So instead of like being at school where 20% of them were the star students, every single person who hired me or sought me out was somebody deeply motivated to learn. And I also wasn't interested in just giving them information. I wanted them to have a result. That was another thing that bothered me about teaching was like, you know, you don't, you just tell people things and hope that they get a result. Well, what's the result? Right. But here it was like, the result was you can have a practice like mine. You can save time. You can, you know, make more money with lower overhead. And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. So that's what I started doing. And I haven't stopped uh, ever since I transitioned into the full, full, full fledged uh, version of this. Yeah. That's very similar. That reminds me of uh, the story of, uh, uh, do you know Alex Formosi by any chance? Oh yeah. Huh? Sure. Uh, so he obviously had gym launch and mm -hmm. he went around the country opening all these gyms. And mm -hmm. I 
you know, vividly recall him speaking on a podcast about how someone asked him, like, we don't need you to come. Just give me the stuff and I can Mm. do it. And Mm. he kind of had like, you know, the light bulb moment, just like you had of sort of, you know, I can sell the blueprint to people and they Mm. just have to follow it. And, you know, I can consult with them and help with them. Uh, So I I find that amazing. Uh, You know, the sort of transition to consulting is I'm very interested in that. Uh, and the sort of things that you do now at Law Firm Autopilot. So tell us a little bit about that. Here's your plug. (laughs) Sell it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it started, started, like I said, with me just one-on-one consulting. Then um, there's this, the American Bar Association has this conference, which they still have. But it, it was kind of embryonic when I went there the first time because I started a I started a blog in 2002. I called it Ernie the Attorney. It got a claim. People thought I knew something about marketing online, which I didn't because I didn't know anything about marketing. But I did know how to have a website, and I had a website, and it had an interesting name. And so, from being invited to speak at the ABA, um, that was a form of teaching. And I realized, like, okay. Teaching at scale is great, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to wait to be invited once a year to the ABA and also don't want to be invited to some panel um, in Louisiana where I live, where I'm the only one talking about tech and I'm surrounded by a bunch of other things because, you know, lawyers have to get continuing legal education. And now we're back to this problem of like, they don't really want to be there. They just have to be there and they don't really care what topic it is. It's just another topic and check the box and let me out of here. But then some of the lawyers were interested in it and I got more uh, attention that way. So I thought, well, the way to do this is to run my own events. So I ran my own events, gave the CLE credit, only, you know, I marketed only to people who cared about technology. That was good, but that was burdensome. So then I thought, what if I taught online? Then I taught online and I put the class up there and they could just watch it when they wanted. I thought, aha, and now it's disconnected from me spending my time, you know, synchronously it's asynchronous and I'm like, now the flywheel is picking up steam. And so then I thought, well, let me make a course uh, that has a bunch of these lectures and sell it. And I made $40,000 in seven days. And that was like brain blew open. And that's, that's, that's when I thought, okay, there's people who want to learn it. They can learn it remotely. I can do a lot of it asynchronously It'll be less expensive for them. It'll be more rewarding for me. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing. And now it's more group coaching on an ongoing basis is part of the equation, but I still do one-on-one consulting and teaching. And yeah, it's the best of all possible worlds. I don't have bureaucracy. I work the hours I want, when I want. I listen to podcasts by people like Alex Hormozzi because, you know, those guys know a lot about marketing and sales and persuasion. And it's just fascinating to watch that world of people who have lifestyle jobs you know they work they work in a way that suits their lifestyle yeah i i agree i agree so much and you have sort of the 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 classic uh i guess the online upbringing of sort of having that light bulb moment i i i can i can't even count on my hands how many times i've heard a similar story like yours uh on a podcast or anything like that where where people kind of talking about how they sort of found, you know, oh, online courses, masterclasses, and, and how well they work 
for the sort of field that they're interested in because mm -hmm. it gets very niche at, at a lot of times mm -hmm. but you know people are always looking to learn and then like you said mm -hmm. uh you know the sort of phrase less is more uh mm -hmm. having those people who will truly be engaged with the, what sort of product you're selling is obviously great on your end because you know you can produce more of it and you know what your sort of target audience is but it's also great on their end because they're getting so much right. value uh right. and and i guess my question here uh for you is is can you sort of talk about how important uh, value is in, oh, in sort of yeah. work that you do yeah, well, I mean, value and, you know, people like Alex Hermosi and all these other folks will say this because it's true, but it's not obvious because if it were obvious, more people would go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what I need to do. In other words, you you know, people, you know, when you're trying to sell things in the business world, you go, oh, well, you know, this product has these great features. Look at all these features that people don't want features. They want benefits. And the greatest benefit of all is it gives me a result I want. Okay. So when you say to people, well, what results do you want? Um, and I can help you get that or give it to you. People will say, okay, well then how much, right? Because all the, all the uh, intermediary trivia goes away. It's like, yes, I want that result. Right. So part of the biggest part of this is figuring out what is the result that people want. And this is very hard because, um, we all have misconceptions about it. So the thing that with teaching, and this is true with teaching too, is you think you know what the students are thinking and what they're having trouble with, um, but you really don't. And if you love books and you want to know about this, is a book, I think the guy's name is Rob Walker maybe, but it's called um, How to Write a Useful Book, I think is the name of it. Um, it's very short. And the premise of the book is he realized that to figure out how to teach people things, you need to know what they're having trouble with, right? And you, you have to ask them a lot of questions. So I just recently have kind of fine-tuned this thing that I call, you know, it's I think it's my best main resource, resource, which is free. I'll happily give you the link. You can share it with your audience uh, or look at it yourself. And it's like, what are the few tech tools that are gonna make the biggest difference in terms of making me more efficient and be able to you know, avoid friction, gain freedom, right? Like that's what people want. That's what I want. I, I wanna eliminate friction or reduce it as much as possible so that I can have as much freedom to do the things I really care about. That's why we have technology. And it took me a long time to realize that's pretty much the universal element here. And so I set about trying to figure out as I looked at all these lawyers and different people, not just lawyers, anyone, because it's pretty much, it's the same problem for any modern knowledge worker. You know, you're running a digital factory off of your computer connected to the internet with your smartphone on the side. These, This is your factory, right? And so how do you make that factory run well? Uh, well, obviously, you know, you need email and you need a word processing program. Those are not the tech tools people need to be told about. They know about that and they pick the one that they like the ones that are going to matter the most in the digital factory world are this list of 12 that I've come up with. And, but I realized that you have to explain them really well, because, you know, if I tell people, they'll go, Oh yeah, but I don't think I need that. And then once they go away, having said that to themselves, it's either impossible or very hard for you know you to retrieve that and get them back on track. So I have to hit each one of these out of the park and they have to be in the right order. 
And so I I came up with the list. It's taken me a long time. It wasn't like I came up with the list. I've moved things in and out of the list. And that's that's it. That's what people need. And now I see a lot of traction by lawyers who who go, yeah, that's true. I was really kind of hedging my bets on that. I didn't follow through. And then when they struggle enough, they'll say, look, what do I need to do to get over that hump? And I'll say, well, I have a group coaching program. If you want to join, join. We talk about this collectively together. We all talk about it. And I think that's the other missing component when people are trying to learn these things is it's, you know, you don't, you need information. Yes. But you need repetition about that information so that it, it it's inculcated, it's assimilated. But then you also need people around you that are using that and doing the same thing so that you can realize your struggle is not the only one. You can ask them questions. You just learn better in a group if everybody's, you know, on the same wavelength. And today in the modern world, you can do that virtually. So that's what I do. Like, but it's all around starting with these 12 tools. There are other ones that you graduate to that are part of the equation too. But if you don't have those 12, especially the first six, you know, you're going to come back knocking on somebody's door and going, oh, you know, this isn't working. And the um, the other thing I'll say is that the name of my podcast changed. In the beginning, I used to call it Law Firm Autopilot, which is the name of the, my company. But I changed it to the 80-20 principle because I think if you want the less is more, you have to understand that this is a real principle. You know, it's like the probabilistic principle that uh, Annie Duke teaches. There are so many places where you get disproportionate results, good, disproportionately good results from very little effort or, you know, not a lot of effort. But what too many people do is they just put in the same amount of effort for everything. And what happens is if you're a solo or small firm person, you've now blown your whole wad doing one thing. When if you could have put 20% here, 20%, 20%, 20% across the board on five things, you'd have 80 times 5% results, right? And this is, you know, this is not theoretical. This is not like, this is like splitting the atom. You know, this is a real thing. You can make massive impact if you do this. To me, these 12 tech tools are the expression of the 80-20 principle or one, one embodiment of it. Like if you nail these, yeah, there's a lot of technology out there you could work on and use, but it's not going to make the biggest difference like the way these things are. And when you put them together, you know, synergistically, they have an even greater effect. And I see that result. Lawyers go, oh my God, this changed everything. Like, right, because that's an important technology tool to use. I will tell you what, I will be getting that link, sharing it with everyone, because uh, I now I need to see the link. Uh, and yeah. And implement these own these tech tools into my my own sort of thing I'm doing over here, um, mm -hmm. but your eighty twenty principle podcast the name sort of reminded me of uh, the four hour work week by uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, th that's that's what it reminded me of, and that's where I first heard about the eighty twenty principle too. So what? just so you know, yep. I, I I love Tim Ferriss, one of my favorites. Oh, he's great. You know, he he I mean he distills things down. You know. He puts he distills things down. And when I heard that 8020 principle, I thought, this no, that seems so bizarre. And I looked it up. It's like, sure enough, there's a Vilfredo Pareto. And lots of other people have talked about it. There's a great um a great uh, book called 8020 Principle by Richard. Oh God, what's his last name now? I'm drawing blank. Um, anyway, he's been on Tim Ferriss's podcast, but it's a real thing. People in finance use it. It's, you know, my brother was in a business, he used it. 
it's real, right? So, but it, the, what I found was when I would tell lawyers about the principle, they go, well, how do I, where would I use that? And that's when I started to get the idea, like, well, maybe it's a question of if I said, look, these are, and I put the link in there in the chat so you can copy and use it. But um, I thought maybe if I show them, here are these tools, these are the ones, right? These are the ones where if you focus your effort on learning to use these and prioritize that above other things you could do with technology, because there's always a lot of shiny objects, mm -hmm. uh, especially new ones. But these are the ones that are timeless. Like they've been around for a long time, most of them, except for AI. AI you know, that's the last one on the list. Um, but they're, they're game changers. All of these are game changers. It's not one lawyer who's used one of these tools once they get to the point where they've used it enough, or not just lawyers, anybody, they go, oh my God, this is like revolutionary. Right. Because this is what the 80-20 principle feels like when you put it into practice. So talk about new shiny objects. We have to talk about the newest of the shiny objects, like you said at the end of the list. AI. We have an AI yeah. in the call with us right now. Hello to him. <laughs> um, take Potter, it. Yeah. I, I've yeah. never, I, I'm just, I'm going to start using it. Like I, I read into the description in the chat and it's basically taking notes for the entire episode yeah. right now. It's <laughs> one of the 12, it's one of the 12 tech tools too, by the way. <laughs> well, well, one of them <laughs> will now be starting to be used by, by myself. Yeah. I'm, I mean, wow. I didn't, Technology is crazy. I got to be honest. Um, yeah. I, I love it so much, but uh, can you tell us a little bit what you're trying to do with AI here in terms of your consulting mm -hmm. business and maybe, you know, your, your more grandi grand grandiose feelings about AI mm -hmm. and ChatGBT? Um, well, I think that it is definitely, it, look, it's real. If you look, you and I talked about this when we first talked about my phone. But there's um, an interview that Bill Gates does with Sam Altman, who founded OpenAI. And if you just listen to that conversation, you'll realize that, the, you know, we know who Bill Gates is in the pantheon of technology. And he's truly enthusiastic. and His mind is blown by the capability of this AI. And this is not a guy whose mind gets blown by a lot of stuff in technology because he's seen it all coming and going, right? So he knows all we, that we need to know, which is that this is going to change everything. The only question now is how is it going to change things? And more selfishly for any of us who ask this question, how is it going to change my life, right? Or the things around me the most? It's going to change education for sure. It's going to change the legal profession for sure. It's going to change anything involving knowledge work for sure. It already is. And yes, it is true that it is not perfect. It quote unquote hallucinates, but all that hallucination stuff is, and when you listen to the interview, because Altman talks about, yeah, we need to make it better. We're going to make it better. But he also says it's kind of a byproduct of creativity. That's the thing. You're spitballing. You're coming up with wild ideas. It's not linear. The world is not linear, flat, and deterministic, okay? This has already been proven. You know, Einstein had to deal with it too. Sorry, God does play, you know, dice with the universe, right? It's, it's probabilities. It's, you know, some some randomness thrown in there. That's how evolution works. And that's what's going on in AI. And so the more I've used it, and I've used it a lot, I I feel like it's it's something, it's helping me understand what human thinking is like. Because that's how we 
have thoughts. We think, okay, I had this thought, oh, another thought popped in my head. Oh, maybe those are connected. Maybe that's connected to this. Maybe that's connected to this. And but if that happens at supersonic speed, and you know, it makes a quote unquote left turn on a small pebble and winds up in a faraway galaxy that wasn't predicted and maybe it's not useful, we go, oh, that's a hallucination. That's horrible. Well, okay, if we'd have had life would never have evolved if it had happened linearly with no randomness thrown in, okay? So I think people who are disturbed by it, they don't want to understand it. They just want it to go away or they think in simplistic ways and God bless them, that's great, go for it. But the world is not simplistic. The world is very complicated and this technology is, is earth shattering. Uh, and if you don't use it, you don't know that. And if you, if you listen to people tell you how it's used and you're not using it, you're wasting your time. Just, just, you know, just ignore everything until you use it. When you use it, you're going to come to your own conclusions and you're going to learn what you need to learn as you learn it, right? You learn to ride a bike by riding a bike. You learn it to do anything by doing it. So you have to use AI in order to develop a, a meaningful understanding of what it is. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I, I've been playing around for with ChatGPT specifically for a very long time in my life. Uh, I, I have a lot of fun with it, but it is really helpful. It, it's such an, a helpful tool, even uh, for a lot of my writing. I mm -hmm. feel like in terms of ideas, it's amazing. But in terms of the way it can sort of change this perspective or maybe, you know, I, I write something, it may seem a little mm -hmm. long. I'm just like, hey, mm -hmm. like, you know, and I think what's most important, like you said, uh, in terms of learning how to actually use it, it's it's very important to actually use it mm -hmm. because specifically with ChatGPT, it's more important the question that you ask beforehand exactly. to actually get what it's supposed to be used for. Uh, right. I know... Uh, I've seen uh, on on X or Twitter, whatever they call it nowadays, but um, they, they I see a ton of threads about how to ask a question. Mm -hmm. So you know, if 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 you in in my example, sort of shortening up shortening up my writing, right. I, I ask it. I ask it to be an editor. Can, be an editor. Yeah. Shorten up right. the writing, and it does a much better job than if you were just to say shorten up the writing. So I think that's important to take in mind as well. And mm -hmm. but. For me, at least, I feel like we're, we're moving just like the industrial revolution that sort of moved us so drastically uh, in, into what we have now. I think there's an, a new epoch uh, mm -hmm. uh, or epic coming up, Yeah, you know, going to drastically change the world. There's just so much that it can be used for, yep. even in terms of uh, like Siri on our phone was even an AI, yep. a very early right. version, and people don't really take that into account. Right. But it's moving so rapidly now. It's sometimes yeah. very hard to keep up. But for me, at least, I'm I'm very excited to see where it's going, and you know the sort of implications. I don't think anybody really knows. But I'm no. I'm so interested. No, I'll say I'll say I'll say one thing though that I I think is important. At least this is from having thought about this a lot and thinking about how to take somebody who doesn't understand what it is and give them the most meaningful guidance that will get them going quickly. The thing about it, about ChatGPT or any of this generative AI is you're right. It's about the questions, right? But I reframe it and say, it's not just questions. It's what you're really doing when you're asking questions, either the first question or the follow-up, you're giving 
this tool context, right? So if you give it the wrong context or it doesn't have enough context already in its database, it's not going to get the useful answer that it will if you give it the context. But the nice thing about this tool is if your initial question is ill-formulated or insufficient, you just ask follow-up questions, right? And you can't do that with search. You can't, I mean, if you do that in search, you start from scratch, right? Like, oh, it's another search from scratch. This remembers where you were, remembers, quote unquote, where you were. And you can even come back to it days later and in the same thread, add another question. Now, there's a limit to how many of those you can do in any in any sequence of questioning, which I'm sure will improve. But it's that's that's the part that's mind-blowing, right? That you can have this conversation through prompting. And so the skill is not to, the skill is to come up with the right questions. But you don't have to come up with the perfect question out of the box. You just have to not be fixed-minded and say, oh, well, you know, I didn't get the answer. Okay, I'm out of here. But you have to be growth-minded. Like, How can we steer this in a better direction? So if you're not good at asking questions or you can't get good at asking questions, you're probably not going to do well with AI. And you obviously like to talk to people and ask questions, so you're going to do great, right? <laughs> you're just going to keep getting better, right? You're growth-minded. You're like the perfect person. But people who are not like you, you are going to have an increasing sudden massive advantage over because they're they're not using a tool that is designed to to be for thoughtful people doing knowledge work. Yeah, I, I first of all, I'd just like to say I appreciate the kind words. That you think I have a, a growth mindset? I I appreciate totally. That's so. That's, sure. probably, that's probably one of the best uh, compliments I could ever get in my life. But uh, I I totally agree with you. Uh, like I said, you know, the questions are most important. At, at the end of the day, it's not just super intelligence; it's superhuman intelligence. Mm -hmm. so if you sort of treat it in that same sort of way, like you're just having a conversation with the regular person, you're going to get yep. much better responses. It, it, you know, yep. it becomes such a more valuable tool. Uh, I I heard you say that the word reframe, which I love to use all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, sort of changing your perspective on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, like I said, I, I, I cannot wait for what the future holds with AI because, you know, it's going to be amazing. And, and, you know, be, being, I wouldn't say I'm early on it or anything. You definitely are because you, you've created an entire business out of it. Uh, but for myself, just to sort of be on the outside, not, not have any entanglements with it. Uh, you know, it's very exciting. It's very intriguing. It's a nice little hobby I have. Uh, mm -hmm. To follow around with it but speaking of of uh x threads uh my my uh, the last of three questions here first i asked and this is now a regular question i don't have to say mm. it anymore. uh what are the sorts of things that you consume on a daily basis not food uh yeah. you know social media you know what are you reading every day mm. uh you know some of your favorite people maybe that that you read all the time that help you you know what what are sort of the the thoughts crossing the transom of your mind. Mm. Mm. Well, I've uh, about a year ago, I started um, checking out Substack. Uh -huh. And I think Substack is an amazing place. And there are so many great writers on Substack. So in, you know, part of my information gathering now is pretty much going to Substack. I still go to Twitter. Um, I like Twitter because it's very short and you can blitz through it quickly, you know, skim the surface of things which is sometimes useful, but Substack is where I go if I want to find thoughtful writers. And Annie Duke has a Substack. Um, in fact, she was early to Substack and she recommended my Substack and I got a bunch of subscribers miraculously through that. And But it's just, 
there's well-known writers, well-known thinkers, and it's just a community. It's it's just a really wonderful platform. So I encourage people to check it out. And my Substack, if you want to find it, it's called the 80-20 principle. Surprise, surprise. Um, and if you look at my list of recommended um things that I read, which is quite large, that's basically, you know, what is in my inbox or potentially in my inbox every day. Well, that's well, that's wonderful. I think I, I didn't. I didn't even know they know. That. Oh, yeah, it does have that. I I use Substack. I, I subscribe to a couple of people. Uh, mm-hmm. I use it for fitness a lot. Actually, I love mm-hmm. weightlifting. I'm very big into it. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I get I get most of my weightlifting programs and and mm-hmm. sort of meal prep sort of things uh, from Substack. It's such a wonderful thing. You know, thoughtful articles. Mm-hmm. There's some. It just it just goes again to say how amazing the internet really is and how much information. There really is out there. You can literally find anything. I I talked about uh, well, there are two episodes again with Elizabeth, uh, mm. two episodes episodes ago. Uh, I spoke about how you know in starting this podcast, I literally went online and typed in how to start a podcast, and mm. just sort of went on from there. And my brother had you know has a podcast too, but I sort of learned it on my own. Uh, but the information was out there, and I found it. Uh, but I will be subscribing to Substack as everyone else should, the 8020 principle on Substack, and mm-hmm. see all the recommendations that Ernie has also on there, which I will also be checking out. I have many things to check out now, which is amazing. <laughs> but nice. second question here, more of a personal question. You're always working. You 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 know, you're doing consulting, you're doing your group work, you're going to talks, doing all this stuff in your life. But what does an ideal Friday night or Sunday morning look for Ernie? Hmm. Um, well, you know, it's, I think all every day can be the same. Um, I live in a city where there's always something going on. Like right now we're gearing up for Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So there's always stuff to do, good music to listen to and things like that. And my wife and I like to go cook food and, or she cooks, I eat, um, but we go to eat (laughs) and have, have good food and good friends. So we're always just meeting friends, you know, we don't really have to plan things. It's a city where things are always going on and you just, if you step outside and you hear a band playing, you walk over and see what it is. And so I love the serendipity of not having to think about what I would do. So that question makes me think, well, what am I supposed to do? And the answer is listen to see if I hear some music or some people walking by and just go out and enjoy, you know, enjoy the company. Um, Yeah. New Orleans is a great place. If you ever come here, let me know. I uh, yeah, I love the simpl- simplistic mindset. I've never been to New Orleans, but now you mm. really you really got me thinking. I might have to make a trip. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it certainly will be on the bucket list now. Adding on to the you know thousands of other places I'd like to go in this yeah. country and around the world. Uh, England, England's a big one for me. I'm oh a, yeah, I'm, sure. a, go there. I'm a big soccer fan as well. Oh yeah, Chelsea Football Club. Big game Wednesday. Anyway, um, so I want to go. I want to go to a soccer game so bad. Uh-huh. Experience the environment. One of the best, probably the best environment in all of sports that you could get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, the passion is insane. But that's one. That's that's the that's probably one of the top ones on the bucket list. Other than that, I'd like to go to Florida. Um, mm-hmm. But final question. I ask this at the end of every episode. What are the words of wisdom you have for the aspiring law students, the current law students, and the current legal professionals? Hmm. Uh, For law student, aspiring law student, I would just say, you know, learn to look below the surface of everything. I mean, this is, 
not just for law students, this is for life. But I mean, as a lawyer, uh, you always have to be thinking, what am I missing here? What is the root cause? Look, that's what scientists do. It's, it's the same thing. Like, I think the world has to operate superficially because a lot of things, that's just the way it has to be. You know, we can't be uh, inquiring, making deep inquiries all the time because then we wouldn't make breakfast and, you know, pick up the groceries. But um, I think the most interesting things are what is going on below the surface, the root causes of things, you know, how those things inter interconnect. And you to see those things, you just have to be curious. You just have to look, you have to notice like, huh, that's maybe not the way I thought it was. Like, you know, Newton, who supposedly discovered gravity, you know, when the apple bonked his head, didn't just go, oh, the apple hit the ground, whatever. And I know this is a metaphor, he probably didn't think like that, but the idea like somebody going, wait, something's going on here. And then they're able to detect this measurable force that is, you know, operates throughout the entire universe. It's like discovering God. People say, well, there's no God. And maybe there is risen. Who knows? But he's not, he, she, it is not detectable unless we find some way of detecting it. Well, that's what paying attention to things and thinking things through can accomplish. That's why philosophy was, you know, grew into every other discipline that we have. If you're interested in the world, you can learn a lot, but you have to pay attention to what's going on below the surface. If you're not interested in the world, I don't even know what to say, except, you know, you don't have a lot of time. And, and I just don't, it's a fascinating world. How can people not be interested in the world? So if you're interested, look around, look below the surface. And oh, one of the best podcasts, or sorry, one of the best substacks is by a guy. Actually, this is the guy whose name is Rob Walker. I miscited. Rob Walker has a subset called The Art of Noticing. And it's all about this kind of thing of noticing things. And it's just a very thoughtful subset. So I highly recommend that one. Yeah. So, and also on that point, I was just about to end the podcast, but I have to say, my brother always says he always sees the pennies on the ground. And a lot there of people ask them. And I took that away. I was like, wow, that was a good one, Chris. Uh, but mm -hmm. that's the podcast. Ernie, thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.